Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings and Q&A from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2022 with Tim Bunting of West Harlem, New York, titled, How We Got the Bible. Let's talk about the canon. Right, this is its own discussion. Uh, and again, this is not really my expertise, um, but I think I have some helpful things to share on the matter. Now, when we are talking about the canon, what do, what do we mean by this? The canon really is essentially what, what books belong or don't belong in the New Testament. And this is an issue that relates to the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. We mentioned the seven additional Catholic Bibles, Catholic books, seven books in the Catholic Bible. So their canon in the Old Testament is, is larger than the traditional canon that you'd be accustomed to. So there's a question. Do those books belong as scripture or not, we're only going to be focusing on the New Testament uh, just to make our discussion a little bit simpler. But think about canon. What, what, is, what does the word canon mean? Now, the Greek word canon means rule or standard. We're talking about what is canon, what meets the standard, you know, what measures up to our requirements so that it fits, so that it belongs. The English dictionary then renders it, canon with one end, it's the general rule or principle or criteria by which something is judged. And very often it refers to a collection of sacred books as being canon. But now in our Marvel Star Wars world, canon is a word we're throwing around a lot more because you're trying to figure out, well, this story about Boba Fett, does it belong in the Star Wars universe? Is it fan fiction or is it Star Wars Bible? But again, who gets to determine what Star Wars canon is now? Well, Disney bought Star Wars. So now they become the ones who say, yep, this, this measures up, this is canon, and this belongs. But what is canon for the New Testament? What is the measurement that we should use to measure if a book belongs in the New Testament or does not belong? Well, I think the measurement, the standard for canonicity is truth, right? It needs to be true. And now there's truth, but then there's Truth, you know, there's truth, and there's Jesus is the truth, right? Is the is this, you know, uh, Christian text? Is it truth? That truth that saves. He said, "You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. You can't come to the Father except through the truth of Jesus." So that's the standard that people are looking for about whether it belongs in the Bible or not. Now, what this other Christian wrote, I, I got things here. I think it's true. But it ain't the truth, you know what I mean? So what's really the difference? Well, the difference, the standard for the truth we're talking about is inspiration. The Bible claims that itself, that claims about itself, that it is inspired of God. Second Timothy 4.16, all scripture, and really primarily there he's referring to Old Testament, is inspired by God. Um, second, Peter, second Peter, he says that we've got the prophetic word, the word of prophecies. Man, we got to pay attention to that. But remember that there's no prophecy of Scripture that's up to our own personal interpretation. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and, and from God they spoke. So the standard for what is truth in this context is whether or not it is inspired of God. So we kind of already know. How do you determine the canon? Well, if it's 
a book or a message or a text inspired of God, it belongs in Scripture. That's the category of Scripture, texts that are inspired of God. If it's not that, it might be good, it might be awful, but together they both don't belong in the category of God's written inspired work. Then, well, how do you determine if something is inspired of God or not? What's the standard for inspiration? Well, there's a couple of things we can consider. Well, what the Bible presents to us is that the standard for inspiration is apostolicity. Right? It's a fun word you can leave here saying apostolicity. Is it apostolic? Is basically what that means. Uh, I love in John 14, Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to leave you guys. Like, oh no, he says, don't stress. You know, you'll be able to join me. You know, you know me, you believe me, so you can be with me again someday. And they're like, well, that's good. But then Judas, not Iscariot, he says, well, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us, but not to the world? If, if knowing you is how we go back to the Father, that's great for us. But what about everybody else? Will you not disclose yourself to the rest of the world as well? Well, Jesus answers that question. He says, okay, I got the rest of the world covered. He says, these things I spoke to you while abiding with you, with the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all these things. He will help you remember all these things. That would be nice. Right? John 15, uh, 26, when the helper comes, whom I send to you, the helper, he will testify, and you will testify. So Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit of God to empower these chosen apostles to be spiritually and especially endowed ambassadors of the inspired truth of God. So if we know a text is apostolic, then according to you know, the scriptures, then that would make it inspired truth. That would make it belong in the category of scripture in the so-called canon. Make sense? Okay. Um, The apostles themselves knew this. First Corinthians 14, Paul says, listen, I'm a prophet. If you're spiritual. You'll recognize that what I'm writing to you, like it or not, is the Lord's command. Um, first, first Thessalonians 2, Paul is grateful that the Thessalonians, they heard Paul's words, but they didn't receive it as Paul's words, but rather the word of God. So that concept there is emphasized within the text. And on top of that, the apostles in scripture, make it clear that their purpose was to distribute and make available this inspired message of God. John says from the beginning, the things you saw, touched, heard, everything, the physical coming of Christ, we're proclaiming that to you. We're proclaiming you the truth as eyewitnesses. Uh, Peter, again, he says in 2 Peter 1, uh, we're not coming up with our own tales and so forth. We're telling you eyewitness testimony, true testimony. Um, and again, these examples here, how this apostolic word was meant to be distributed to seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. Um, James, his message to all the dispersed Christians, well, get it, you know, make copies, spread it to all these dispersed Christians and Colossians and Laodiceans, sharing their scriptures with one another. So copies of this inspired word, you know, that itself says, hey, this is the this is the apostle's word. This is the inspired word. This is the authoritative word. Make sure other people get their hands on this. Just a natural process we see evidence within the scriptures themselves. So think about the natural formation of the canon. Now. You know, everything we looked at here, 
is really what scripture is saying about itself. Now we think of the canon and we think of this council of dudes and they just kind of arbitrarily based on their preferences say in, out, this, that, and where's it? Oh, okay. You know, and we kind of get that picture because in later generations, religious powers, well, they had a lot of power and they took power from the people. People could not get their hands on scripture. You know, when some of these manuscripts were being discovered, Religious powers were still keeping them out of the hands of the people. You know, religious powers, they didn't alter the word of God, you know, to change it for their own purposes. What they did was they just tried to keep it away from people. Right? So they couldn't read it and figure out, oh, wait a second. This is evidence that these practices are wrong. Why am I saying all this? I don't know. So, the, so that, that's not the way you can inform with these few individuals or these powerful peoples and stuff. The canon happened automatically. And that's not that hard for us to understand because you don't need the Bible to say, thou shalt make a canon. You know, make the books, put them together, bind them, and, and then there you go. No, the Bible says you need to know truth. Truth sets you free. So what are you doing? You're looking for truth. The Bible says the truth is going to come from the inspired apostles. They're preaching the word of God. By the way, miracles. Okay, so there is evidence that they're true. So what do you do? You go to them, and you read their text, and you share their text. And your homeboy, Clement, he writes something. Oh, this is good, too. I'll share this also. But... But this distinction is natural and is automatic. And this distinction was made by the Christians naturally and automatically way before it ever became some powerful force far removed from the original church or gospel message. Truth was a natural standard. The disciples, they sought for truth. Acts 2.42, what they do? Continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were accustomed to disregarding things that were false. There were some, you know maybe relatively ignorant Samaritans. They didn't know the gospel, sure, uh, for sure. And they followed this guy named Simon because he could do some cool tricks. Oh, he must be a power of God. So they follow him. They gave this guy money. He's going to help us get closer to God. Then Philip shows up. and He's like, boom, 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 boom. Some real miracles. And they're like, Simon, peace. And they follow Philip instead, being amazed at his teaching. They went after what they realized was the true message. You know, we're not talking about canonizing books or canonizing teachers false teacher forget him true teacher let's follow what his teaching is so this disregarding of false teachings was was natural how much does the new testament say to disregard false teachings so you don't think the christians kind of were trying to figure out false versus true in the documents right oh jesus got married to mary I don't think that happens, right? And they kind of disregard that and, you know, and share uh, the texts that were more reliable from the apostolic circle. Um, the apostles themselves, uh, they reinforced the idea of valuing their writings over other writings. We mentioned this before. There were fake apostles writing pseudofigria, like writing the name of Paul, as if it were from Paul, but they're writing false messages and sharing them with Christians. Paul says, these things are not from me. If it says it's from me, it's not from me. That's not truth to follow. These words I'm writing to you, these are true. This is what I want you to believe. The Lord, day of the Lord hasn't come yet. You didn't miss out. It's still yet to come. Uh, and here is my distinguishing mark so you know that this does genuinely come from me, the inspired apostolic source. So that's what people cared about. That's what people were looking at. Um, and it's also cool um that you know the new testament begins to describe itself as being scripture as being canonical 
First Timothy 5.8, Paul says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. What's that got to do with anything? Well, the second phrase here, the laborer is worthy of his wages, Paul here is explaining why it's fair for people to receive compensation. Well, he's quoting the law of Moses, and he's also quoting the book of Luke, right? Uh, and what does he call the book of Luke? Scripture. So before the New Testament is done being written, it's being called by other New Testament writers, Scripture in the canonical <coughs> categories. So, so that's what Christians were doing with it. This is Scripture. This is, you know, whack writing. This is a good writing, but not Scripture. They were making these distinctions. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, oh, another good one. Peter warns about people who are distorting Scriptures, false things about Scriptures. Um, he says, he mentions Paul and the wisdom of Paul, and he wrote about these things in his letters. They're kind of hard to understand, so that's Peter's jab against Paul, revenge for Galatians. Um, and, uh, and he says that unstable and untaught people distort Paul's writings, just like they what? Due to the rest of scriptures. So what does that mean about Paul's writings according to Peter? Scripture. So the New Testament is calling the New Testament scripture as opposed to other things. And again, part of this natural process, uh, the formation of the canon, originally spoken inspiration was what the Christians relied on. You know, they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. They were at the apostles' feet, period, right? But they didn't, they didn't have the writings yet. Well, then Paul writes Galatians and shares that in other letters. They get dispersed and spread. But as time passes, you know, my belief is, which is, um, you know, not accepted by all, I believe that the miraculous gifts of prophecy and tongues and so forth were beginning to cease. And so you did not have as much spoken inspiration as readily available to the Christians. And on top of that, because of time, oral tradition would become more and more unreliable. But what? As the written word of God became more and more prevalent and distributed, more heavily relied on, more distinguished among the brethren. So what does, what does Luke do? He says, hey, you know what? It's about time we get a pretty good orderly account of the life of Christ. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of prophets spoke about it, but they've passed on. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things. Truth makes for falsehood. Let's get an orderly account based off of the, the help of Paul and other apostles about the life of Jesus. And what's also cool that the Bible itself says that it's finished. You know, Paul in Galatians, one of the first books that was written, he says, you guys are deserting the true gospel for a different gospel, a perverted gospel, which is not really the gospel at all. If anyone preaches a different gospel, he should be accursed. Jude says, you, I need to contend for the faith handed down once for all. There's the finality of the gospel. We, we delivered to you the gospel, and that was the gospel. Should they be expecting changes or additions or differences or updates or anything like that? Book of Mormon. No, that was it. And so the Christians said, okay, we, we got the apostles' writings and teachings. That's the truth. That's all the truth, and that's the end of the truth that we're going to receive for the time being. And so, again, all this contributes to this natural formation of the K. 
canon unofficially uh, on the part of disciples. Noah had to tell the disciples to establish the canon. Disciples wanted the inspired truth that came from the apostles. They accepted, copied, distributed these books, disregarded the others. And what evidence is that is which books do we have thousands of copies of? Now, we're going to talk about the lost gospels if we get time. Part of the reason that they were lost, because there weren't that many to begin with, and so we have like one copy of this one, and it's halfway through. Well, why do you only have one copy of that one? Because nobody cared about it. Nobody was copying it. Nobody Because nobody trusted it, nobody relied on it. Not like these other books that have an obscene amount of uh, copies of distribution. Well, why were these books copied so much? Well, the Christians regarded them as being scripture. You know, all the money invested. You know, it's really cool. You can't study the invention and the production of the Codex without speaking about the New Testament. Because the reason the Codex became what it, what it did as an invention was because it was the Christians who kept making them, like commissioning for Bibles to be made. So... Cool things there. So all that's a little bit helpful. So really quickly, how do we determine apostolicity from our perspective? Chronologically, does the writing come from the age of the apostles? If it was afterwards, could be written by them. So not from them, but if it's within their time frame, it's apostolic. Is it authorship within the circle of the apostles? Um, you know, Luke was not an apostle, but he was in the circle, the influence of the apostles. Same thing as as Mark, and so it's still apostolic, even though it has a different authorship. Conformity to apostolic teaching and tradition. Does it fit with what's already being established as the true gospel? You know, hopefully I'll get there. Skeptics really critique Christians for only accepting the books that conform to what they believe. But why do we believe it? Because this is the stuff that makes sense. This is the truth that made us believe. So this is what we believe. And so something completely different that contradicts that. Well, then why would we believe that? Why, why don't I believe in the Book of Mormon? Well, okay, how many hundreds of years later completely contradicts everything I've com- I-, I believe about the Bible? Well, why should I accept that? Well, why should I accept any of these books? They don't conform to the teaching and tradition. Uh, and again, people say, well, they're just picking the things that they like and so forth. That's not really a good representation of what happened. A little bit. So... You can trace some of this history of the uh, camp formation through quotations made by early church fathers. Uh, this concept of the four gospels is first mentioned by Tatian in 150 AD. He mentioned there are the four gospels. So that's cool. Keep in mind, early Christian fathers, a lot of different beliefs. Some were crazy. Uh, this guy, he bans uh, wine completely, meat, and marriage. So I would not agree with him doctrinally. But he still has reference to these four Gospels that we trust. Uh, Irenaeus, um, he backs it up 177. He mentions these four Gospels. But look at how he supports uh, doctrinally, so-called, the existence of four Gospels. He says, well, it's not possible that the Gospels could anything be anything different, fewer or, or less than four, because since there are four directions of the world, four principal winds, four living creatures, there must be four Gospels. Okay, well, that's... That's not good doctrinal reasoning there. So you can't agree with these people as a whole. So we need to take their testimony with a great salt. But you have more people witnessing there were these four accepted Gospels. Uh, Clement 200, same thing. But he also regards as authentic the Gospel of Egyptians. Oops, sorry, I should have done my trip with the bracket thing. Um, tradition of Matthias, Hermas, Pistol Barnabas, Apostle Peter. So, yeah, these books, but then also other ones. 
So it's, it's a complicated process to go through. Marihan, same thing. Um, but you can you can trace through these early quotes and get an idea of what were the Christians saying, thinking, how they speaking about, talking about certain books, which were regarded as scripture, which were not, so forth. It's very, very complicated um, history. But that's kind of what you would do to go through. This is not how it happened. Um, funny hats. You're not determining the uh, canon. Everybody talks about the Council of Nicaea. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Council of Nicaea. Hey, everybody has a Council of Nicaea. Do you know anything about the Council of Nicaea? No, maybe. The Council of Nicaea is, well, that's when they said the canon. No, it's not. That is not when they established the canon. Everybody throws it out. Council of Nicaea is when they tried to come to consensus about the deity of Christ. And pretty uniform, they were like, Christ is deity, and there's one guy over here. No, you're wrong. Start your own club. He's not a creature. That's really the, the big conclusion that was formed at the Council of Nicaea. But again, oh, so the deity of Christ only began at the Council of Nicaea? No. Like, and it's, so same thing with this, oh, the, count, the canon began at this council? No, that's not how it happened. We believe the deity of Christ because of the scriptures, which is why the Christians believe that. Which is why even these people kind of came to that conclusion. That's kind of how this works. Irrelevant, but interesting. Santa Claus was at the Council of Nicaea. St. Nick, he was there. Um, so I'll share that with your friends. Um, now, there, there was the, uh, in 363, there was a first synod or assembly of clergy. And in that meeting, it seemed like there was more of like, okay, let's just go ahead and put it on paper. These are the books. Uh, and, that kind of, and that conforms to the books that we are accustomed to. That's really the result of this, right? With our last minute. Oh, wow, look at us. We got, we got some time. So, with the end of our lesson here, let's talk about the lost gospels. This is a fun thing to talk about. I guess it was a long time ago now. I guess I was in high school or something, maybe college. Uh, you guys remember the Da Vinci Code, right? Dan Brown wrote this cute book. I didn't read it. Um, and it's this. Uh, fiction, kind of based off of nonfiction. You know, he takes realistic kind of things and writes this fiction story. And it's this whole conspiracy theory of religious leaders and suppression of truth and so forth, and all very fantastical and good. Um, but he kind of popularized, again, the existence of these, these lost gospels, which I think is more accurately identified as forgotten gospels. Uh, they were never, I mean, truly lost. We've known that these Gospels existed because we read what early Christian fathers said about these Gospels. And a lot of them didn't speak very highly about them. A lot of them we've had copies of, you know, as long as we had copies of other things. Some of them we have recently discovered. Oh, snap. We heard mention of the Gospel of Judas, but now we got a copy of it. Or the Gospel of Thomas. Now we got a copy of it. I forget which ones are which. Um... But what happens again is it's this very esoteric, like, oh, we've got the information. We've got the Bible books that you Christians don't even know about. And these, and these bum jerks, they didn't put them in there because they were just trying to oppress women and stuff. And, you know, we say, oh, what do we, what do, we do with all this? You know, it turns out Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. The whole Bible is fake. What do we do? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here. Uh, Gospel of Thomas discovered in 1945. Gospel of Mary in 1896. Gospel of Philip in 1945. Uh, we've got four copies of the Gospel of Thomas. That's more than, than most of these. Again, four copies. How many copies do we have of the Gospel of Matthew? All right. I don't know. Right? 
we saw the numbers on the board before. We're talking thousands of copies of the Gospel of Matthew. You got four of the Gospel of Thomas. Why? It's because nobody cared. Um, these would all date from second century and later. Um, skeptics, no one thinks that these Gospels were written during the times of these so-called writers. No one thought that the Gospel of Thomas was written when Thomas was alive. Nobody thinks the Gospel of Thomas was written by Thomas. Because they also don't think that Matthew was written by Matthew. But they're like, well, you know, Gospel of Thomas came out in 200-something A.D. Thomas didn't write it, and yet you're dumb for not believing that it belongs in the Scriptures. Well, if Thomas didn't write it and it came 100 years later, why should it belong in Scriptures? You, you see the inconsistency of this approach that they have. Um, So, so here are these books, and again, they were not seriously regarded by the saints, uh, not as other writings, Episcopal of Barnabas or of Clement. Those were spread, but these were not. And so here they are. They're not lost. They're rejected, and they're forgotten. It's kind of like this. I go to the thrift store, and I find a copy of Jaws 3 on VHS. <laughs> My dad never told me about Jaws 3. This is the lost Jaws. Oh, man, this is going to be great. You put it in, what happens? Oh, that's why I ended up at a thrift store, because <laughs> it's a garbage movie that nobody cares about. Um, <laughs> so the best thing to do is go through these lost Gospels, and a lot of them all conform to this, this philosophy of Gnosticism. That might be a word you've heard before. Gnosticism was a contemporary thought process. It was very, very Greek, Greek, very Roman, not biblical, but a whole different approach to life and existence. And they basically took their contemporary philosophical thought, and then they liked Jesus, and they put Jesus' flavor into their Gnostic philosophies. He just really fit with the kind of vibe that they were going for. So they just handpicked them out of there and then ran with it. Gnosticism is the idea that, you know, flesh is evil, spirit is good. So to be saved, you overcome the flesh by having this kind of spiritual and intellectual uh, epiphany. And through your mind, through your soul, you rise above the evil and dark flesh, right? And the reason they think this way is because their belief is that there is one ultimate great God who like burped one day and out came the Demiurge. And he, the Demiurge is like, like a troll of a guy. He's deformed and, you know, foolish and dumb. And, and he was just a, a big, ugly brute. And you know who the Demiurge is? The God of the Old Testament. So here's this brute, nasty God, and all these dumb things he did. And then here comes this, uh, this manifestation of light that comes from the great God himself, Jesus to fix everything, to save us essentially from the demiurge, give us spiritual enlightenment, and then here we go. If you believe Christ to be the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, would you regard those teachings? Would you put them in your scriptures? Why would you do it? It's a whole other religion. It's not Christianity. Like, it's not Christianity. They borrow Christian elements but it is not the gospel in any, in any kind of form. And so there's no reason for us to be even pretending to include that. Um, in these gospels, you find all sorts of cool gems like this. This is a pretty famous one you maybe heard before. Uh, this is Gospel of Thomas. 
Um, this is what Peter says. It's more embarrassing than anything else Peter said in the real Gospels. Simon Peter said to Jesus, let Mary go out from our midst, for women are not worthy of life. Oh, come on, Peter. You're such a fool. How embarrassing. Eating your words. Jesus says, now look how wise this is. See, I will draw her so as to make her male, so that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who has become male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is progressive, right? So this is the kind of material that we're dealing with. You can throw a lost gospel this, all that. It's, it's a little silly. Um, this does not need to be any, any, any kind of our genuine personal concern at all. Uh, there's, there's no issue uh, for believers with that. And so last thing here, I mentioned before, scholars, their biggest criticism for against Christian and the Christian canon is that content and doctrine play a major role in canon formation. But again, they think all of it's fake. So truth isn't part of their standard. So they're not looking for what's, what makes sense, what does it. It's all fake, so it all, it's all just as garbage as the rest of it. So that's why Gospel Thomas, in their eyes, belongs to the Gospel of Matthew just the same. They think any Christian writing written in the first two centuries should be included regardless of content, and they disparage us for not including them. But if we did include them, they would disparage us for all the inconsistencies in ludicrous teachings. What if the Gospel of Thomas was in, you know, your New Testament, what would they say about that quote? You dumb Christians. <laughs> All you dumb Bible believers and your, your foolish teachings. But, then, but again, that's kind of what we're living in. Whether is there anything we can do that will be respected by everybody in the world? No. So we need to be wise and discerning and make good choices about these things and allow people to think what they want. Um, a quote from uh, a guy, Theophilus, apparently, um, he says this, oh no, a, a writer speaking, an uh, article I read from a skeptic about something this guy said. He is a window into the thinking of converts. He was converted by the predictions concerning Jesus in the Old Testament, perhaps the weakest grounds for conversion. And that, that's, that's a skeptic's perspective of what's going on here. You, you believe this is inspired word of God and Paul because you think the the prophecies have been fulfilled. If they throw that out as reasonable evidence, what is it? We're not having the same conversation here, right? And so just kind of keep in mind that this is kind of the approach some people have to this material. Um, and okay, this same author, then he said this. Then there was some other wacky early Christian writing, and it predicted the end of the world twice, and it didn't happen. And He's criticizing Christians for not including that in the Bible. You know, it's clearly not true, but that belongs with the rest of it. So, so big takeaways are this. Formation of the canon, it's, it's a tricky process. Uh, we really should care about that. My kind of conclusion is I'm more worried about books that have been included that, that shouldn't rather than books out there that should be included. Uh, I, I'm not worried about these other texts belonging in Scripture. That, that from all my study, that doesn't seem to be a question. Um, if I had a question, it would be, well, maybe there's something that's in there that shouldn't be. When they were forming the canon, that was really the issue. Well, we like these books. Do they belong in Scripture? It wasn't, oh, should we add this guy or this guy? No, these, these are out. Do these belong as well? So that was kind of their approach also. And I'm not saying that I think there's a book in the New Testament that should be out. Um, I don't think that. 
But if there were to be some kind of change need to be made, that would be really more likely than, than the latter. So it's a complicated process, a lot for us to study and to consider. But we need to remember that it was a natural formation done by disciples, people like you and me, using their brains, understanding of scripture. It's not determined by these big forces. And just because somebody puts the name of Jesus on something doesn't mean that it should be a part of scripture. We can be wise in discerning and evaluate the content and the meaning behind these things and come up with good, reasonable conclusions about that. All right, well, that is our last lesson for today. You guys have been excellent, awesome, very good attention. I don't know, are we doing one more question and answer? Do one more question and answer, and then that will be the end of you guys having to listen to me. Good questions. Um, so one here says, uh, would people read the lost gospels and study them? And maybe it is, do people do that? Is there a reason why somebody would do that? People who would look at these Gospels and study them, what would be the reason for that? One is you're a historian, and this is what you do. Um, you, you study all types of books or religious texts uh, because you, that's what you do. You study these things. So there's, there's that. Then you have maybe skeptics who would read into them because, you know, very interesting, curious, controversial to have something different than mainstream Christianity and, and look through them for that kind of fascination or maybe some kind of this desire to have a little bit uh, special knowledge over ignorant Christians. Uh, Christians would read and study them, try to figure out if what's the validity behind these books, is there validity behind them, or read or study them in order to be able to discredit them, to address um, issues about them. So uh, there are reasons why these books can and will and maybe should be read. Um, but for the average Bible believer, um, I don't think we need to worry about too much. You're welcome to do so as a fascination, curiosity, but I think there's more important things to be investigating than that. Uh, his question says, um, though Gnosticism has always been around, would you say it is making a significant comeback? I think, yeah, I think so. Um, because the air of Gnosticism is in vogue again. Gnosticism, when you really get into it, you realize it's all about esoteric knowledge. It's this appeal for esotericism, which I didn't know what that word meant before. So I studied Gnosticism, and I kept seeing the word esoteric come out of my book, and there you go. The definition of esoteric is, you know, you're, you're with your hipster friend. He's got a patch on his backpack. Say, that's a cool patch. It's like, oh, it's this really cool band you've never heard of, right? Just I know something that you don't know. <laughs> I'm better than you because I know things that you don't know. That appeal to our pride, that's the definition of esoteric. Gnosticism was built on that war in our cool club because, yeah, we got the knowledge. Oh, you didn't know Judas and Jesus were actually, they planned it? Oh, you didn't know Jesus and Mary had like an intimate relationship? Oh, yeah, man, you got to get, get, get with the time. So that's kind of this whole Gnosticism thing. Postmodernism and Gnosticism, I think, really sliding together because this is deconstruction of actual truth, reverence for what is actually right, just blowing things up and out and just being loosey-goosey with it and just kind of being wiser and better than the next guy because you're not following all the same simple people who believe things like gender and stuff like that. You know, we've, we've advanced beyond that. So I, I think that the... the um, kind of hard behind these philosophies are very compatible, so we see more of that. 
Um, this question says, so the first Council of Nicaea met in May 325 AD. At this time, was the New Testament pretty much established in its entirety? And I think basically the idea is now. Um, and the way you would know that is, again, you go through manuscripts like the Vaticanus or St. Agnes, and you see what books are included, all these other unseals, what books do they have concluded, where they, what are they from? If we have compilations of books with these set canons before that council, or you look at, again, lists that Christians, early Christians gave of the accepted books and so forth, um, then, yeah, you're going to see a lot of evidence. And you can you can do things when you say, well, the first mention of the 27 accepted books in a list was by this guy at this time. It doesn't mean that, oh, everybody knew which were the New Testament books right then, but you've got evidence of, of this gradual progression. And um, any skeptical scholars will kind of confirm that based off of early Christian writings and compilations, the general concept of what was the, um, the canon was pretty well established and then later confirmed that some of these councils and things. Um, this question says, some of, the, uh, some of these new modern translations contradict some basic Bible verses in the King James Version. Why do we not consider these as heresy, uh, referring to the modern translation, and uh, perversions given by Satan to deceive us? It's a fair question. If we've got different versions of the, of the text, and if God's word is the inspired truth, it can only be one thing, you know, and it can't, can't contradict. The contradictions are not compatible with the concept of inspired real truth. Translations don't commonly contradict They'll say things differently, which isn't the same thing as a contradiction, but sometimes it's rendered in a way that does is not compatible. Well, it's either this or it's that. And sometimes these two different things are compatible under the whole truth, so they can either can work even though they're different. Or sometimes it might be saying just two very different things that, well, either this is true or that's truth. And so if we've got texts rendering the scriptures in a wrong or different way, then that would be a problem. That would be heresy, false teaching, and so forth. Well, as we kind of mentioned in, actually, let me pull it up real quick. Um, as you mentioned in this slide here, there you go. Oh, did it. Um, in this slide here, we see that the King James translation was based on much later manuscripts with with our discovery of more ancient manuscripts in the 1950s and before. Now translations are based on older text base. I believe this text base is more reliable than this. So I think the conclusions made in more modern translations are the conclusions that modern translators make about the text space before turning into English, just the text space in Greek itself. Those conclusions are more reliable. So that's why I would trust in those conclusions as being truthful more than the text base determined by the text of Sanctus in 1516. So I, I feel like the uh, the text base, the more modern text base, is a more reliable text base than that of the Textus Receptus. Um, here's a good one. Would Jude seeming to quote uh, Enoch or the book of Enoch be similar to other New Testament authors quoting the Septuagint instead of the Masoretic text? Very good question. So. You might or might not know this, but in the book of Jude, there is a reference to this argument about what to do with the remains of Moses' body, the burial of Moses' remains 
and there's, there's this argument between uh, Satan and Michael, right? Michael, uh, you know, you're like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that happened, right? And what's interesting is that this event uh, apparently is told to us in the book of Enoch. So here's a new, if there's a New Testament author, and he's quoting this other, you know, you know Bible-related text, doesn't that mean that this author is then sanctioning and, and supporting, evidencing this, this text? So if Jude quotes the book of Enoch, does that mean that Enoch should belong in Scripture? So that's not really what the question is, but I'm going to answer that. Um, so basically, I think, well, no. What do you do with that? There's the possibility, and it's more like this, that there was a ancient oral tradition that Enoch, the book, the so-called book of Enoch refers to, and Jude also independently refers to. So rather than Jude referring, quoting the book of Enoch, Jude is referring to the same oral tradition that the book of Enoch is also referring to. We've got the name Janice and Jambres of the two magicians, right? Two right? magicians uh, opposing Moses. That's mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy. Well, those names are not given to us in Old Testament scriptures, but they are the traditional Jewish names of those individuals. So Paul is not quoting scripture. He's quoting Jewish tradition. Is he quoting Jewish tradition, knowing that's not necessarily what they're actually named, that's what he calls them? Is he quoting Jewish tradition because this tradition actually is accurate, that was their name, the Holy Spirit knows that and quotes that? But we can see this ability to, to refer to things that were circulated and known. Um, so, so that. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful. Now, so the idea of quoting first Enoch being similar to quoting the, the Septuagint of the Masoretic text I wouldn't see that as being very comparable, whereas the, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. The Book of Enoch is not scriptures at all. So it, it kind of like quoting Septuagint or quoting Gospel of Thomas. It's kind of what it comes down to. So, so I hope I answered that question. Maybe I did do um, <laughs> Lastly, this is a, that's a tough question to end on. If the books are largely considered genuine based on authorship, what about Hebrews? It's a wonderful question. If authorship is so significant, how can you trust a book if you don't know who the author is? If, if, we, need, if we need to know that these books come from an inspired source, well, how can you trust this inspired if, if you don't know who the source is? So that, that's a really, 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 really good question, really important question. I don't have a good answer for that. Um, everybody denies that it's Paul. Too different stylistically. Paul's all things to all people. It seems kind of Pauline to me. Um, but but regardless, I think what you would do is two things. So there's a lot of Old Testament books that we don't really know who wrote them. You know, who wrote Joshua? Who wrote Samuel? You know, who wrote other books? Um, traditionally, they might be attributed to certain individuals. So I think we're a little bit used to trusting in certain books being scriptural, even if we don't know the actual individual author. Um, so can the same be said of the book of Hebrews? How did early Christians refer to and consider and treat this book? Did it seem appropriate for early Christians in their study to see as being scripture? And also based on the contents of Hebrews, how much is it? fit with 
the whole scriptural story. Hebrews especially. I mean, it's neck deep and fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. I mean, it's it's neck deep and being connected with the message of the whole Bible. Uh, you would it'll be very difficult to do that and present all this really unique information. It's not said otherwise if you're not the real deal speaking from God. So there's that part of it, uh, which is a bit subjective. Um, but no, that, that's a really good question. That that is the kind of questions that we need to care about. Um, and Hebrews is one of the books that was, you know, a little bit late consideration in terms of its canonicity, probably for that reason. So, but again, you can probably read, I think it's the Epistle, Epistle of Barnabas, I think, does a sort of a similar thing, kind of connecting Old Testament, New Testament, either that or the Shepherd of Hermes, I forget. And you can kind of compare the texts, and Hebrews yeah, it kind of elevates itself pretty quickly in the quality of its content. So... So good question, not a great answer. Wonderful way to uh, conclude. <laughs> my, my session would be long. You guys are awesome. Uh, heavy material can be quite tedious. I hope it was engaging enough. It's hot. You guys have done a really good job uh, staying with it. So many, many things. Keep uh, investigating, keep studying. So much information that can be learned. Um, pray all of us will bless us in different ways. Um, Pass on and put this guy up here. Again, uh, any questions, email me. If you want slides, you want notes, let me know. I'd be happy to make that available to you. We hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating, a review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, please reach out, 717-585-0949. You can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.